This is Coda Radio, episode 430 for September 6th, 2021. Hey, friend, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. You know, they got that Cloud Playground over there. Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud Sandboxes on their credit card. Not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and helping me navigate this crazy world of podcasting, it is our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. How's the sweat in there, Fisher? Oh, I mean, hi. <laughs> it is. It is all kinds of hot and sweaty. Sticky. Sticky. Record humidity in Tucson Oof. while I'm here, which has also meant uh, record bugs. Record bugs. 20-year record for bugs. And they bite. <laughs> they all bite. So I'm covered in bug bites. Yeah, we kind of broke down in Tucson. You know, we came down here to get something fixed, our slide, which had been broken since May. And then as we're leaving the shop, I hear this really loud rubbing noise, almost like, you know, you're driving with your e-brake on kind of a sound. And although it's not my e-brake, I stop, look around, don't see anything. So I see if I can reproduce it. Sure enough, I can reproduce it pretty quickly. This time we take another look and we see that on the rear driver's side, part of my suspension, a sumo spring has cracked. These things are marketed as indestructible, by the way. It has cracked and fallen onto my tire and it's rubbing against my inner dually tire. And it's potentially damaged the tire. My suspension is compromised in the back rear. So I decide, crap, we got to park it for a little bit. Well, this is a Friday before the long Labor Day weekend. And I didn't really appreciate at 3 p.m. on a Friday how all of Tucson would shut down. <laughs> and so every, and I still... It's, we're now recording this on a Monday. I still haven't got a hold of anyone to find a replacement part or a shop that will see us because everybody's closed for the long weekend. So screw Chris. <laughs> it's just been horrible because, you know, it's been 100, 105 every day and we don't have hookups. So we're running off generator at best, which means our air conditioning, our generator and our power bay are in this constant dance of heat. And it's been a lot to manage. Then yesterday comes along. We get a notification about a very severe thunderstorm in our area. Oh, okay. All right. Next notification. These are like, you know, the phone buzzes, like the Amber Alert kind of buzz. Another buzz comes in. Oh, God. Massive dust storm. Take shelter now. Don't go outside. Another message comes in. Huge hailstorm. Quarter size hail, dime size hail, inch size hail. Like they just keep upping it. They sent three different notifications for the hailstorm. Then after that passes, tornado. I'm not even kidding you. A tornado hits the area. We're just kind of on the edge of it, so we just had a lot of wind. Then, I'm not kidding you, we get flash flooding, all within the span of three hours. None of this was in the forecast, and it starts when it's 104 degrees outside. It's just unbelievable. So there was a slight break in all of this, because there was periods of like downtime between each major storm, and we went out there, and the wife and I jury-rigged the suspension up with, with a bungee cord, so we could get down the road and get to hookups and get at least air conditioning going. So now I'm sitting in this RV park. I don't even know the name of it. <laughs> I don't even know where I am. I'm <laughs> just waiting for shops to open so I can see if somebody can fix my damn suspension so I can hobble this thing home now. That's my world right now. That's my world. How has your week been? I'm sure, I'm sure it's been at least slightly better. Yeah, definitely far less eventful. 
I did have a little problem, but nothing that involves losing electricity. Uh-oh. So are you aware of these services that, quote-unquote, scan websites for malware and other – basically like reputation verification stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, in a negative way, I'm familiar with these. So last week we were doing the show, and someone after the show – it was actually Drew – uh, messaged me in our Slack saying, hey, uh, your site is blocked on Edge. I was like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> okay. Right. I love that Drew's checking Edge for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have an upcoming launch, which is going to involve like, you know, advertising and driving traffic. So it's kind of like, huh, that's a problem, right? Not, not, not that Edge is, a, you know, dominant, but Edge is... It's doing all right, actually, in the market. It, it's doing all right, right. It, it, it helps that it's from Microsoft. So whatever, whatever. So I check, sure enough, it's blocked on mine. Like, huh, what the hell? Get the error. This site is known to contain malware. I'm like, what the hell? This is my business, like, boring WordPress marketing site, right? And fairly freshly updated, too. Yeah, it's updated fairly recently, right? I mean, we have another sub uh, subsite coming up for the new the product launch. But that one, like, isn't... That one was fine, which is weird. It's up. If you're clever, you can find it. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. But we're not, you know, officially launched. So I'm, I'm getting nervous because, you know, I'm making arrangements, ad buys, keywords, all that good stuff. And I can't, for the life of me, figure out what the hell is going on. So I read the error. It's malware. I'm like, that's kind of weird. So then I have a, a couple of my guys start digging into it, and I'm digging into it. And I find that there's some, like, services I had never heard of that have listed the site as malware. And what it looks like has happened is a lot of the big name browsers and like virus detection tools actually buy their ratings list from other services. Right. It's like a lot like how the uh, a lot like how the spa- spam blacklist works for some mail providers. Like a couple of different groups put together these lists, and then people just subscribe to these lists, and whatever goes on there gets blocked. It's not like they're not checking it. Yeah. Finally, I found this like no name company that apparently thought this I had malware. There's like a whole petition process I went through. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out when. And they don't want to respond to you with like, you know, an actual response. I eventually got an email from somebody. And what caused them to flag my website as malware? It took a wild guess. Hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm going to guess they're using um, some scanner. And the Mm -hmm. scanner picked up like some... Uh, like best practice kind of issue. I couldn't. Nope. I don't know what it would be. No. Okay. What? Apparently, they just rescanned it, and for a three day period, I had a non linked uh, private URL, you know, security through obscurity, to share an exe of a pe- an internal piece of software we use as a team with an outside source. Oh, like just throwing it up there so you could get a link for somebody. I just threw it <laughs> on the server just to get them the link. Oh man! And their policy, their policy is they don't care what it is. If the extension is .exe, it's malware. Hmm, yeah, I suppose because they figure like you could you could name something notepad.exe and it could be a rootkit or something. Right, they don't check. So, Which is interesting though, because like, well, let's say you have a website and then you have like an FTP server, but let's say it's open. Does that mean your website's automatically listed as a blacklisted? Because <laughs> there were ISPs that you couldn't get to my site from that bought the service and blocked it at the ISP level. You know, it's interesting that Chrome must be using a different list than uh, Edge's. So I've, I've learned a lot about this. Google does their own. Ah. This service is weird because it sells to ISPs and enterprises. And I guess Microsoft Smart Screen must somehow also use it. 
but it's um like when I finally got more information about it, they have a whole unpublished list of things that they consider no nos. Although ironically, if you have a DMG file, which is a Mac executable, they don't they don't care. Oh geez. Well, I suppose it's not directly. I mean, because you have to mount it first, but or even like a dot app. A dot app would be directly. <laughs> <laughs> right or or like if you have a uh, XE in a, in, a, in a zip, they don't they don't they don't get that either. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> and it's it's actually one of the features they sell on where they say we check malicious executables and we but like they consider any executable malicious. Mm-hmm. So my thinking in this is if I was selling independent software directly again and it was for Windows, that would preclude me from having like some secret URL where you can like you know download. Yeah, you'd have, you'd have to have like a separate demo site or something. Or even like a demo, right? Even like a shareware version. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's you know, in a way, it's a good thing you were even able to track it down at all. If it was, say, Chrome and it was Google's automatic uh, search dis- discovery thing, how would you ever get anybody to do anything or tell you anything about it? I mean, it took, it took quite a bit of effort to get a response, but yeah. Oh, man, that's tedious and totally not what you want to be working on. Well, it's one of those things that, like, it's obnoxious, but, like, ultimately it is my problem. Yeah, kind of. I mean, in this case, it seems a little extreme. And it's always kind of an embarrassing look, too. And it's like, right, so now I, you know, I look like my site's been compromised. And if anybody comes across this in their browser, what are they going to think? <laughs> well, they're not going to, like, hire us or buy anything from us, right? Like that's, Right. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> God. Yeah. Jeez. So rough week all around. Well, Zero wrote in, and he said some of the hit home, um, and I've been seeing this a lot on like Hacker News comments and uh, Reddit and other places. He thinks essentially the desktop Linux train sailed a long time ago, and it's just time that we take lessons and start over with something fresh. I don't know if he has like Fuchsia in mind or what. He says, imagine building and documenting the best repairable computer in the land with a Unix-like OS that is great for everyday tasks. When that computer is built by an advertising powerhouse that is environmentally friendly and their message gets taken seriously, then the next renaissance will kick off. I think a lot of people feel this way, that, you know, we're just on the verge of a breakthrough with right to repair. He says we should continue pushing for repairable devices and take a general strike on devices that aren't repairable. And while I like this sentiment, it's just never going to happen. And I don't mean to crap on this idea I feel like we need to work within the constraints of reality here. Uh, for a lot of people, an easy-to-repair laptop is driving 25 minutes to a store and handing them your laptop, <laughs> and you know they take care of it. Um, and then you come back two days later, and they hand you either a repaired laptop or a brand-new laptop. For a lot of people, that's, that's the kind of repairability they want. I don't know. He says, I heard a wise man who said the choice that makes you more independent is often the harder one but the more correct choice. Building and joining huge communities dedicated to spreading awareness for decentralized kind of movement would do wonders for a renaissance. We're just on the verge of a renaissance, Mr. Dominic. I don't buy it. Okay. <laughs> do you think his point about the desktop train for Linux has sailed? It's a weird mixed metaphor, but I've seen similar sentiments online a lot recently. Like people just sort of getting to the point of, uh, they missed the boat. They missed the opportunity. They have the server, they have most of mobile, they have a lot of IoT, isn't that enough, they being Linux. Uh, the desktop, they miss that. And it just seems to be like something people are casually throwing around on in online conversations now. I mean, I certainly feel like for me, like a year ago, I was much more optimistic about it. Well, probably two years ago. See, it's difficult to say this without getting into GNOME bashing, 
but yeah, it, it, it definitely sailed. Right. But it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be desktop Linux if it wasn't the way it is. Right. Just the fact that like, <sighs> this is weird, right? Cause like Pantheon is good. Gnome is good. KDE is fine if you're a psychotic, uh, but like Gnome is not good, right? Pantheon is good up to their resources. And I, and I like, you know, the Daniel and Cassidy and it's fine, but it, it's a, you know, it's elementary, right? It's not, a, it's not a huge project. I mean, it's huge relative to open source, but it, it's not Mac OS is my point, right? Yeah. There's always a way that you can look at uh, Gnome, Pantheon or you know, less so KDE. Cause I feel like KDE is kind of more doing its own thing, which I, I definitely respect. And I respect all these projects. All right. You know, everybody knows I'm a shill for System76. I've read the comments. I really thought it was going to get there because of Pop. But what's happened with Pop, and if you're careful, you can kind of see this on Twitter. They have this weird, uncomfortable relation. And this is me. Like, I don't, I've spoken to them at this, not at all, right? This is not them. This is me. They seem to have this weird relationship with Gnome that's not really good. Or healthy. Or healthy. And <laughs> every once in a while, late at night, you'll see one of the engineers over there just like bitch that bitch out Gnome, right? And it's well-deserved. And I, you know, I've, I've spoken to Neil uh, from the Gnome Foundation. So it, um, regarding other things, and I'm, I'm not like saying anybody's right and anybody's wrong. Just a difference of vision, really. Well, it's an inefficiency, right? Like, how do you make the Linux desktop better? You make it Mac, right? You have one desktop unified controlled this is what you get but then it wouldn't be linux like i don't think that would fly for the linux community hmm i i can i can see where a lot of people are coming from and i hate to also relitigate the past but i can see a few pivotal moments i think the uh gnome 2 to gnome 3 kde 4 era can i just say wayland yeah the long transition to wayland this transition away from to unity and also the transition away from unity on canonical side and then at a at a higher, more important level, because I think all of those were were some significant paper cuts, but they weren't the death blow. But I think what also has played a huge factor here, and it's going to be obvious as soon as I say it, is mobile. And the commercial operating systems just did a lot better job at integrating into a mobile ecosystem. And maybe that's only like when it comes to like streaming services and music streaming and the kind of stuff that consumers are into. They nailed that stuff better, especially on the Mac and iOS side, but you know, really just on the Mac on iOS side, but they did a lot better job where Linux didn't really ever get off the ground with the strategy there. And ironically, you can build all this stuff yourself. Like you could set up a pretty nice Linux workstation with the Plasma desktop. You get the right kernel, you get the right configuration, the right hardware, and then you install something like KDE Connect and you've got integration better than between your desktop and an Android device, better than anything any commercial desktop operating system is doing. But it's just not, it's not in a way that a commercial industry could package up and and run with. And you then had also just through these changes in toolkits and desktop strategies and and sort of a singular developer story never emerging properly for the desktop in particular, I think you never got a lot of traction with commercial applications. And so the commercial vendors out there, like the stereotypical Adobe's, they remain committed to the platforms they already support. And there was never really any value in supporting the Linux platform. And I think over time, a lot of people just decided that was not an acceptable compromise for them. So for many, many people that have those requirements, the desktop train did sail, if you will. 
uh, a long time ago. And then you have a slow sort of coming to terms with it that you, where you see people kind of popping off online where they've hit their wit limit and they're just popped off. And now they just went and bought themselves an M1, like a, a Linux content creator that both you and I follow announced on Twitter this weekend that they just went out and got a MacBook uh, Air M1 and, you know, the whole setup. Ooh, DM me later. I'm curious. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's it, well, I just want to, like, just backtrack a little bit here. I don't think, especially younger listeners, will remember, like, how controversial some of Canonical's desktop stuff was just several years ago, Right. Uh, Unity was not like, we, we just tossed out Unity like it's, oh yeah, Unity, you know, it's hot dogs and beans. That was a big fight. And it was a nasty fight. And I think it had a significant cost internally at Canonical. I, I just want to say, does the name Leonard Pottering mean anything to anyone? Because like, there was some, and I'm not trying to pick on him individually, but like even back then, one of the things that kind of always kept me half out of the Linux space was there's a lot of big egos that like are, are somewhat openly hostile to people making money. Right. That too. That is definitely a thing that has been even worse in the past. Yeah. It's, it's just easier to, I mean, uh, this is where I think elementary does an awesome job. They get in a way that I don't even think like, honestly, like pop does like elementary understands what you need to provide to have a thriving indie developer ecosystem. And, and frankly, an app store, they give you an SDK. You can do other things, but they bless a specific set of APIs and language. In, in their case, it's Vala. Whether, whether you think Vala is a good choice or not, it's a little weird. I would have gone with something a little more mainstream in the other world, but it's a good language. It is very similar to C Sharp. And you know what? If you want to be a app developer on elementary, and obviously it can cross over to other GNOME-based desktops, then they have a beautiful developer site that is documented, and you can go do that. Right, and the software center that you can monetize with. Software, I'm sorry, I called it the App Store Software Center. Right, and they not only do they make it possible, they make it easy, and they seem to understand the mindset of an uh, independent developer in a way that even like Canonical just frankly did not with the Canonical Software Center. I'm sorry, the Ubuntu Software Center. They, they just sort of lack the critical mass to make that impact. And it, and it really needed to be something that would be cross-distribution, too. What, they've, what Elementary has done needs to, say, be applicable to every GNOME slash GTK-based desktop environment. And if that was the case, then you'd have a pretty clear developer story. But you just don't. It's one of those things, like one of my dark fantasies is that, you know, because this is way inside baseball, but Cassidy used to work at System76. That like they or Dell would just simply buy elementary, right? Make it proprietary and say, this is our Linux desktop and basically make the Mac OS of Linux. I, I await your hate mail. I'd like to see Dell do that. And then system 76 focus on delivering an environment to more power users, which is what I like. I like that they're doing that with pop. Yeah. Pop definitely is like, are you an engineer? Great. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, that is something I still think really works for Linux and, I, I kind of wonder if that isn't a completely and totally valid market all on its own to address is the engineers and the developers and the sysadmins out there. Like, it seems like that's a plenty good market. It just means we're not going to get a ton of commercial applications. And I, I see what I, what I'm still struggling with is a, is a larger position where I'm trying to change my mindset. It's like that, like that content creator who switched to the M1. I'm trying to change my mindset into thinking, you can still be a Linux user and even a Linux advocate and not use it on the desktop. 
and I inherently don't believe it, but I'm saying it and I'm trying to make myself believe it because like when I saw that tweet that he grabbed an M1, I was like, you got to be effing kidding me. And I realized I was doing the tribalism thing that I just ranted about last last episode. week. Yeah, you were. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Let's let's take somebody like me, right? I program primarily for Linux servers and then like little IoT devices that are almost all running Debian. Right? Their servers are running either Ubuntu or SUSE because you know if you're saying you're running SUSE. Oh, excuse me. I just I I just got a little sick in my mouth. Do you need to clean up? Do you need to like wipe yeah. the little wet nap? <laughs> I need to lay down for a minute. <laughs> but I do the most of that. Like the majority of the time now I'm doing that on a, a Mac, right? Am I not developing for Linux? That's the exact question that I have been kicking around in my head since this weekend. And maybe even a little bit longer. And I think you are because you're creating software for Linux. You're selling a product that runs on Linux. You're just doing it from a different operating system. Can I take it to the next logical step? Yeah. Let's say I could mathematically prove that I develop more software, more efficiently, with less errors running Mac OS because of whatever familiarity, whatever tooling I'm used to, than I do on, uh, let's say, Ubuntu. Wouldn't it be in the best interest of, quote, Linux community for me to actually be a Mac user? Assuming the output is better software. Assu- let's just say, as, as a premise to the argument, we proved it mathematically that it was so. Yeah. Hmm. And you could probably make the same argument for somebody who's stick- sticking with Windows, but maybe using WSL. Yeah. Well, and it isn't WSL just Linux anyway, right? Without the desktop. And although they actually can run like desktop applications, so they're even blurring the line further. I'd like to know what the audience thinks, coder.show slash contact. I think we have to expand the definition to say yes. Um, I think it does. I think we can't consider the definition to be just a desktop user. Tyler wrote in, he said, regarding 429, where you talked about the Linux Foundation director using a Mac, I agree that on the grand scale, tribalism should end, he says. But I think people, the Linux Foundation should represent Linux, the community, not the Linux corporate deep pocket. (laughs) That's just my take. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Tyler. There is also an extreme example. Like, should the people running the Linux Foundation be running Linux? And is it different than, say, Satya Nadella using a Mac instead of a, you know, a Surface? I don't think people at the Linux Foundation see Linux as a desktop product at all. I don't even think it factors in. I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. If, if we were to, like, Wonder Woman lasso the Linux Foundation board members, they'd be like, yeah, Linux is a kernel. And a set of technologies that we help get adopted in the market. <laughs> and it's not desktop technologies. <laughs> well, no, but this, this actually ties right into the previous conversation because if you define Linux as software that runs atop the Linux kernel, right? I'm sorry, as the kernel itself, and then being in the Linux community is writing software that runs on Linux, then that is a very broad definition, right? Because really the fighting, the stupidity, the tribalism happens at the, at the user land layer of, and I don't use land, it's the wrong word, don't. I'll jump down my throat. But at the, you know, the right, how many times have I bitched about GNOME not being able to run extensions without crashing? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. A lot of the tribalism is at the user level. I think that's fair. I think in that, in that world, it, it actually has to be okay for the people running the foundation to not use Linux, assuming that everything the foundation runs. But they are using Linux. Wait, 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 wait. They are on the server. Th- th- not just on the server. That's in their house, in their home. I guarantee you. There are devices that are running Linux. True, true. They may not know it, right? Like, listen, my mom runs Linux. If I told her, she'd have a heart attack. But actually, she wouldn't care. But 
she she does run Linux, but she just doesn't know. She doesn't know. I know because her stupid coffee machine crashed and it was a Debian prompt. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think I'd consider her a Linux user though, right? Like I think maybe the line is- Why not? Well, Why not? She hits a button on- Because it's not by choice. She voluntarily bought that machine. True. No one put a gun to her. Isn't that winning? See, isn't this winning? Winning, seriously, if we have regular people who are just, you know, random ladies in their 50s who are accountants, right, that bought a coffee machine for a stupid amount of money because she really likes cappuccino. This is another conversation we, would have, we won't go into. <laughs> okay. But like this stupidly expensive coffee machine is in fact running a, a uh, you know, single board computer with Debian. Is that not creating regular, real-world Linux users? Everybody with a Nest thermostat is running Linux. I suppose, yes. Everybody with a Chromebook, right. Everybody with an Android phone. I mean, if you broaden the definition to the point of Linux is the kernel, then not only has Linux just like wildly won on market share, it's dominant. Right. And everybody you know is a Linux user. Unless, like, there's the five guys who, like, intentionally buy things with BSD on them. They frighten me. They exist. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account. And of course, you go there to support the show. You know, this here show is made possible by you taking advantage of our sponsor's offer. And Linode is one that we can enthusiastically recommend and endorse. They've been around for 18 years. They are the largest independent cloud provider in the world with 11 data centers and nearly a million customers and businesses around the globe. But for the last 18 years, they have focused on making cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, and reliable. I think that's definitely worth mentioning, and performance. That's the number one reason why I chose Linode initially, and now I stick with them for a ton of reasons. I use the crap out of their S3-compatible object storage. Anything that can talk S3 can talk to Linode's object storage, so I use it for the back end of NextCloud. We use it for just sharing files when we don't need to necessarily use NextCloud. I've used it to share videos and movie clips. Maybe I want to send somebody a link to something instead of putting it in a large attachment. I put it up on object storage, and one of the things I love about it is they have a Linode command line client, and you can do all kinds of stuff. It's not just for object storage. It can you know, manage your systems, but it'll also manage object storage, upload files, mark them public, etc. It's so quick and handy to just point that thing, add a file, get it up on the object storage and share it. They also have super fast networking, one-click application deployment. So if you just want to test something, you can deploy an entire stack or you do like I do. I'll often just deploy a base system with a container runtime Get everything right. And one of the things I like about Linode is they build them really smart. I've gone through them with a fine tooth eyeball, I guess. And I've looked at their setup. I've looked at the repos they're using, made sure everything's legit using the correct GPG keys. It's all there. And then on top of that, they have these community stack scripts that are pretty neat. And you can audit them and see what they're going to do and sometimes swap out different distributions. And if you really need to get down to the metal, they'll even let you do custom OS loads. I've done that before. And rumor has it, they're also working on bare metal systems. <laughs> How about that? You know, there's really just no better time to try out Linode because right now you get $100 and you support the show. And it's a great way to send them a message and say, hey, going into the next year, keep supporting the Coda Radio program. If some of you take advantage of our offer right now, right before I send them an email saying, hey guys, you want to renew? It would work out great. <laughs> so go over to linode.com slash coder. If you ever run into any troubles, they've got the best customer support in the biz. Phone, ticket, chat, even social, they're going to help you with that. Plus they have hundreds of guides and tutorials and their community support runs deep. You know, they made our Jupiter Colony reunion trip possible. 
And I didn't really understand, even when I was booking it, how important that was going to be to get out there and get to see some people and and realize that our audience is real people out there in the real world. I can't tell you how helpful mentally that is for me because I kind of live in this social media echo chamber, getting feedback via email and Twitter. So to go out there and meet people, it keeps me going. It keeps me energized when I'm stuck down here in Tucson at 100 degrees. And Linode made that possible. I mean, that's going to keep me going for a while. I really appreciate their support of some of my favorite open source projects through hosting and monetary support. They're just a class act. And I, I can fully endorse them. So go check them out at linode.com slash coder. Get $100 in 60-day credit on your new account and support the show. That's linode.com slash coder. Well, we have a couple of more emails to get into. Uh, Parker wrote in to tell us all about how he uses his phone, which is like a OnePlus 6, to work with a remote keyboard and do everything on the road. And then when he needs an extra screen, he just Chromecasts it to his monitor and he has VS Code on there. He says it doesn't break a sweat. LTE connectivity means he has data just about everywhere he goes. I think he's kind of laughing at us with our uh, big laptops. But the best part, he's 12 years old. Uh, and a child shall lead them. All right. <laughs> no, I know, right? No, I, it would be not. Yeah, okay. I, I'm glad it works for you. I, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's a neat idea. He, he you know, he has, he's onto something. I, I, I I kind of like it, but it just wouldn't work for me, I don't think. No, it wouldn't work for me. But no, seriously, if that works for you, that's awesome. And obviously, especially for young people, right, sometimes access to hardware is a challenge. But every, almost all these kids have phones now, which is disturbing to me. But yeah, good on you, Parker. Yeah, and it's a great way to get by when you don't have the budget as a 12-year-old to buy a bigger computer. I mean, I bet it, I bet he could compile Objective-C on his phone. Keep going. Hmm. Hmm. Our last email comes in from Rossetti. He noticed a nice update for VS Code that he thought might interest us. He says, I think Microsoft was listening to your complaints very closely. As they do. As, of course. And the uh, Visual Studio Code update for September has revved up the Python extension support. Of course, if you've already got it before, you might want to go get an update. Um, They are touting all kinds of new features in here, including the IntelliSense support has been updated for Python (laughs) 2.7. Hey, yay. <laughs> yay. Wonderful. <laughs> I know. Um, but I wanted to give it an honorable mention because I know you love this extension and it just got a nice update. They fixed 80 bugs in it. You know, they did the whole thing. They've also updated the um, hosted version of Visual Studio Code to have top grade Python editing support now, too. So that's nice to see. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, I, you know, make it better. I use it every day. So there you go. Keep making it better. Yeah. Keep making it better. If you want to send us an email, we'd love it. Coder.show slash contact. Anything you want to talk about, we want to hear about it. And just a reminder, I am still on the road eventually. I guess I'm parked at the moment. I'm stuck in Tucson for a couple of days, but I don't plan to stay here. So uh, as soon as I get it fixed, I'm getting the hell out of here. Tucson, it's hell. I'm sorry, guys. If you live in the Tucson area, I don't know how you do it. Just about every town I visited on this road trip, I've liked a lot. Salt Lake City kind of sucked because the the wildfires were super bad and Salt Lake City had the worst air quality in the world at the time. And I never got to leave the campground because I was working so much. So I couldn't really enjoy Salt Lake City. But Tucson, I have been stuck here the entire time and there is nothing to do here and there's no shade. And the only place to go is the top of Mount Lemon or Lemon. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's a nice drive, and there's a lot of cool ecosystem stuff to look at, but you got to go up 8,000 feet into the air to get down to 70 degrees. Wow. (laughs) So I'm not 
between you, dude, there were a couple of days, two of them, where we didn't know what else to do. So we just got in the car and we were getting heat exhaustion. And so we got in the car and we drove to the top of this mountain and we pulled over into a parking spot and just slept because we were so exhausted and we're not sleeping well because it was so hot. It's been hell. So probably not sticking around in Tucson very long. <laughs> Could have tried to get up to Flagstaff and then get up north further faster. But if you're going to be on my route, go over to colonytracker.live if you're in this area and watch where we head. And if it looks like I'm heading your direction, there is a micro meetup link on that page. Let me know. I'm still doing micro meetups on the way home. Uh, I love getting a bite with Coder audience members. They're some of my favorite. Don't tell the other podcasts, but the Coder Radio listeners are some of my favorite. It's because he's secretly a Mac fan. What? How dare you, sir? How dare you? Besperch me like that. Besperching me. <laughs> Apple is delaying the rollout of its CSAM detection that we talked about not too long ago. Apple says they're going to hit the pause button and take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these, quote, critically important child safety measures. Did Apple just get majorly embarrassed? Did they actually blink? Yeah, they've had a couple rough weeks PR-wise. Yeah. There's also that employee Slack channel they shut down about fair pay, which, Ooh. let's be honest, I can understand why they shut that thing down. <laughs> I mean, I think you and I will agree on this. The way you prevent these problems, Apple, is you don't allow it in the first place. Right? This is like the base camp thing. Right. They got a lot of hay for being like progressive, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like at, at your core, you're a business, your job is to make money. So... It is a great policy to have, if you are the owner of a business, that people are not to discuss their pay, and your business communications are to be used for the business. You know, we're, you're not a social whatever, right? You're not an activism group. You're a business. Keep it that way. I know, I, I guess it's attractive from a PR perspective to, like, pretend like you are, and that just, I mean, that bit base camp right in the butt, Right. Isn't that the same kind of line that Apple is walking? You know, they well, it's the same thing, right? They talk about pay inclusivity. They talk about getting diversity right at the company, but then when the employees start talking about it amongst each other, they shut that thing down fast. Well, it's like you know, and they, and they're always careful to like with their keynotes track how many of what types of people, but you know, go on stage, right? Like they do all this stuff, and that's great, I guess. But the minute it starts costing the company money or the executive strife, notice how quickly they shut it down. I don't know. To me, at the core, like, if you're a business, why are you pretending to be anything else? Right. There's no shame in being a business. Well, they don't want to look as just a business, though. They want to look at, they want to be Apple, the company that's changing the world through health and through environmental activism and all that kind of stuff, right? They want to be seen as as a progressive company and it's all part of their branding there's no such thing no animal exists i know well that's the great thing about this story is it kind of like it, it's the crack in the veil that shows you the reality that they're a business just like the business you're probably working the listeners probably working at right you know working yeah. at right now it's it's the same kind of like at the end of the day they exist to make money and if you Screw with the money source, they're not going to tolerate it. And that's why they allow cute dog chat and funny dad joke Slack channels, but they're not allowing equal pay Slack channels. But to your point, they should just have no non-work chatter, right? It should just be all official work all the time. So that way now they're not paying, playing favorites and getting called out for it. Yeah, I mean, granted, you can't sit on everybody's shoulder and like monitor, well, I guess you can actually monitor every Slack communication, but you know, you're, I, I doubt you're going to like dump on people for like doing, hey, happy birthday, you know, to 
to Maria because it's her birthday, right? Or, you know, hey, John, congratulations on having the kid. Of course, you're going to have some non-work chatter. But, like, maybe the company systems are not a platform for discussing political or social issues. I don't know. Because, like, what if one manager is a conservative and one is a liberal? Does that mean they can't work together? That seems crazy to me. But what you're essentially saying then is go set up a private chat for those conversations and for a tight-lipped company like Apple, that causes leaks. Well, no, I'm saying if you and I are both, you know, hardcore progressives, which I I think it's safe to say we're not, um, listen to Unfilter. Sorry, Chris, didn't mean to have you. Uh, We, and we work together, right? We should do that somewhere else other than JB, right? We should like meet at a bar or something. And like, that's our private time. That's our private forum. We're people who are entitled to full lives. And I'm not saying people can't have opinions, but I don't think it should be in the company chat. But the problem is that requires you have the nerve to actually have social interactions with people and ask the hard questions. And the brilliant thing about our modern society is now you can order food without ever having to see or talk to the delivery person. You can order a car and say you don't want to talk to them. And you can set up Slack channels so you never have to have these uncomfortable conversations in person. Come on, man. Really? I think that's part of why it happens. We're always bitching that some of our fondest memories before COVID were like, for me, you know, doing the System 76 super fan thing or some of the little uh, developer conventions that I would go to when I lived up in New York and now down here in Tampa. Oh, I agree. Honestly, like you, you know this. I'm usually probably one of the most conservative people in the room, right? I don't mind dealing with other people. That's, what's wrong with dealing with other people? I, I think it's a social anxiety thing that a lot of people have. They don't want to have these hard conversations in person. And so they've migrated to text chat and Slack was just the low hanging fruit. I think it, cause think about it, this, this problem pay inequity has existed as long as businesses have existed. Sure. Of course. Employees had to sort this out before Slack existed. It's just that Slack was the easiest, least socially awkward way to do it. And so more people at a larger scale than ever were able to take advantage of it. But I, I'm not trying to defend in, in, inequal pay. Like if pe- two people are doing the same job, they should be making the same wage regardless. That's, that's self-evident and obvious. What I am arguing here for, though, is that there is a way for employees to handle this that doesn't actually use cust- uh, I'm sorry, employer resources. You know, this story has been has been played really negative for Apple. And I think the only reason it has is for the reason you pointed out, that it goes against their sort of progressive image that they like to put out there. But if Apple, if this was coming from Bank of America or if it was coming from Boeing, everybody would be like, yeah, of course, Boeing's doing that. They shouldn't be, but of course they are, right? But because it's Apple, it's this whole, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, does Tim Cook know about this? You know, does he know? Tim Cook's progressive. You know, like it's, it's just ridiculous. It's, the, it's more of the breathless coverage that uh, people have around all of this. And I think the bigger story in a way, and it's overshadowed, is the fact that they actually blinked over this CSAM stuff. It's probably not gone. It's probably going to come back in some other form. Oh, it's not gone. It's not gone. Yeah. The whole thing seems weird. It just came out of nowhere. Like they didn't talk about it at WWDC. It's a major aspect of the operating system and they didn't even mention it. And then mid-August, they announce it. And then by September, they've retracted it with no new deadlines. Now it's just left looming over iOS users that one day this thing's going to get deployed on their system. Yeah, but I mean, I think ATP covered this really well. There's something going on over at Apple where the PR is just getting killed. Although I say that, but they did that great coup where they snookered most of us, frankly, in the potosphere or whatever you want to call it. Right around the new app store concessions, quote unquote. Which are not, in fact, concessions. You, you get nothing, right? Like so. Yeah, that's, that is a savvy PR game. 
No, they behave like a business. They put care and thought into where they make money and they were sloppy with everything else. That makes it actually, yeah. Totally lines up. Totally actually. lines up. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, you know, they announced that I, I was kind of uncomfortable with, but really has gotten very little critical reception, is the iCloud Relay, their privacy-centric, like, half VPN. Yeah. Like, really? You're just going to take all my traffic? And I have the iOS beta on my iPad. And every time I connect to Wi-Fi, I get a notification telling me that all my traffic is being relayed through iCloud. I, I can't imagine that like Verizon's particularly happy about that kind of thing. Because I know they, you know, for those who don't know, your ISP almost certainly sells your internet traffic. Right. Well, and wireless carriers are also trying to make sure that you're not streaming too much video or whatever. And they want to re they want to like reshape your packets. And if it's going through some sort of quasi VPN. Although it is important to say that iCloud really is not in fact a VPN. It is, it is just a, it's like a proxy relay. Yeah. But it's happening and nobody really seems to care. And it's like, that seems like a point where an authority could come along and ask for records and Apple would have to produce them. And now your internet traffic is all on file at Apple. Right. But without it, your internet traffic is all on file with your ISP anyway. True. <laughs> and in the case of mobile, your ISP is your carrier. Right. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel. And it's kind of like, it feels like a little bit with the CSAM stuff and this iCloud relay stuff. If you don't trust Apple to manage and run this thing properly, probably shouldn't be buying an iphone maybe that's your sign but your other choice is to trust google yeah i know i know and forget about apple and google you got to trust verizon or at&t or whatever the other but is t-mobile still around yeah uh, i mean i you know john john that the crazy guy with the pink shirt's gone so i don't pay attention to them anymore right it's all i could it's the only time i cared uh yeah you know google's already doing the csam scanning too yeah google's been doing it they're like all right whatever <laughs> and we're like we've yeah. been doing it in google photos yeah. for like 10 years what do you want yeah so you're not going to get away from it. Speaking of pain, I understand that my buying seven laptops a year is about to get more expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, I worried about this about about three or maybe six months ago. I said, we're going to get to a point where the price is going to go up and the only company that can afford to buy chips is going to be Apple. Well, now we have a report that TSMC is expected to prepare its biggest price hike in a decade, which is going to impact many sectors, including like cars and other tech sectors. But it seems that TSMC is also looking to weed out so-called double bookings that a lot of companies have done in which clients place orders for more chips than they actually need just to try to get enough inventory so they can hoard, I suppose. I don't know. But it's made it hard for TSMC to really get an idea of what the real picture is. So part of the reason they're raising the rates is to make it too expensive for people to do that. And the smaller nanometer processors are where the prices are going to go up the most, a.k.a. Apple. But Apple's going to just pay a ton of money into this thing. They've already announced that Apple has signed a new contract and they're going to go all in. And so Apple's going to get their chips made and everybody else is going to fall in line and they're all going to have to pay more. And you think about it, like not a lot of them have the margins like Apple does. Apple could afford to eat this cost raise or they could happily pass it on to consumers and Apple consumers would pay the increased price. You know, if they have to raise the price by 200 bucks or 150 bucks on a laptop, Apple consumers are going to pay that, where Dell consumers and HP consumers might not, or Chromebook buyers, right, where it's even more price sensitive. I really feel like we are entering into this crazy, awkward two-year leg where the tech industry is just kind of going to stagnate, where we don't have really increases in GPU speed, we don't have any actual practical increases in CPU speed, because 
Nobody can get the parts out in the market except for Apple. And it's happening in the same time frame that they've made this M1 transition. So they've got a unified hardware platform that is custom to their own. They've got a unified software platform that is custom to their own. They've got the pockets and the relationship deep enough with the fab to be the ones to still get the chips, even when there's a shortage. And they have the margins where they can eat the price increases. And I just feel like this is this is going to be a couple of year period where we're dealing with these supply shortages, where Apple is going to emerge in a way stronger position than they already are. And the rest of the industry is going to be knocked on their ass. And I... I don't think this is a good thing at all. And, you know, I was down at System 76, and when I talked to Carl six months ago, he's like, I think in, you know, about six months, things are going to be turning around. Well, I was just there, and I was just having a new conversation with him about this, and he's like, I don't think it's getting any any better this year, and I think it's going to go into next year. And, you know, for System 76, they've, they've had to take their own capital and use that capital to buy the hardware they need. Like, they are spending more for gear than they ever have right now. And uh, how long can something like that be sustainable across the industry? Um, I have many feelings on this. All of them are negative. So, yeah, me too, man. I guess I mean you. You kind of implied it, but I don't see this as a eighteen months to twenty four month problem. I see this as a five year problem. And it and we've just stagnated for the last couple of years already. We're already in a stagnation phase. Because I okay. So I was going to talk about it this week. I just purchased a gaming laptop that should arrive Wednesday. Ooh, neat. Yeah, because I'm getting my second shot vaccine time i'm gonna be dying because apparently if you have a heart condition you get the vaccine it could hurt mm. yay first one sucked second one's gonna suck more yeah and you know what else though but assuming you survive which i hope you do i'll survive that's gonna be fun for you and the boy like that's gonna be a blast yeah so but i'm gonna be off for like two days this week right <sighs> yeah because i already planned it so i got this lenovo it's a legion is that their gaming sub brand oh that sounds right i've never actually really uh, heard anybody that bought a lenovo gaming laptop that's cool well, the price was unbelievable. 64 gigs of RAM, whatever stupid NVIDIA card, uh, two hard drives, one's a terabyte, one's two, for like $1,400. Uh, yeah. What size screen, do you know? Uh, I think it's 15. Yeah, it looks like, I'm looking at their webpage, it looks like it's 15. This is a nice looking rig, actually. Yeah, it's, it seems fine. We'll, we'll check it, I know, I'll see how it goes. But that machine, because of this chip shortage, I think is going to be on point for the next three, four years. Yeah. Without any like eGPU chicanery or you know anything like that, because we're we're just not going to progress the. Uh, I think particularly I think like GP the whole GPU situation is weird because the crypto miners and mm-hmm. you know how much ML stuff actually runs on GPUs not CPUs, right? I like I can't get a PS5 with at retail price if I sacrifice a goat and draw a pentagram you know, in the blood of a Windows 7 user on the ground, right? I just, it's not going to happen. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and Ford has like parking lots of trucks that they can't sell because they have no, you know, no chips. So I I, I don't see, I guess, I, like even if T, one, it's super bad that TSMC produces such a high percentage of the world's chips. Like maybe competition would be a good thing. Like my, my can, can we have one of Mike's uh, nationalistic wet dreams? Oh yeah, I love those. Let me get my notepad. I think Apple needs to like Tim Cook needs to go away. We need to get somebody who's more like Steve Jobs that wants to own the entire stack, and they just need to build a factory in some flyover state. And like, I don't know, man. 
there are Republicans everywhere who will give you tax incentives and charge you no income tax, right? Like if you employ the people in their state who are on the dole, like maybe we should just do this. I mean, Tesla's moving to Texas for that reason. Do you think though, Steve Jobs, I think, I think was under Steve Jobs' watch, probably with Tim Cook running operations that they, you know. It was Tim Cook who pitched it, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole, the whole China, the manufacturing thing happened under his watch. So I, I don't know if he would undo that. Well, so the challenge is like, there used to be lots of manufacturing companies in China. Yeah. And now for this, it's, it's basically TSMC, right? Intel does some of their own fabbing. Yeah, and it's Intel, but we're you know like nobody's really. But they're Intel. Yeah, and well, and, and Intel's just like sort of struggling getting their own shit together right now. That's really the rough part. Is like Intel, Intel could have been in a great position right now to you know to be the the source of parts, but it just seems like they're too busy doing restructure after restructure internally. You know what just occurred to me? This is the third or fourth week that we have harped on the failure of Intel to. I guess basically do the do the process shrink, right? Well, it's kind of disappointing in a way because if I could snap my fingers, I would I would like to see x86 getting all these gains that you see on the arm side. I would love to see x86 just continue on for another 20, 30 years, uh, you know, as a, as the performant low power option in the market. It's not it's not gonna. No, but wouldn't that have been amazing? Wouldn't that have been best case scenario for software compatibility purposes? It would have been. I mean, although having said that, well, one of the, I should have mentioned this. So the Lenovo I ordered is running the new Ryzen whatever fancy. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to see that actually shipping now. AMD is doing some interesting stuff on the, uh, the you know, X60 whatever, AMD 64 architecture. Uh, but, you know, throw an M1 at somebody and watch them cry. <laughs> right. I mean, it, the problem is the M1's just like, hey, we're just better in almost every way. Especially for people who care about the power usage, you know, because um, I was looking at mini AMD systems and they're pulling in like 60, 70 watts. And I was looking at Mac mini systems for the same job and they're pulling in like 30 watts. That's a big deal when you're on solar. Datadog.com slash Coda Radio. You know, this episode of Coda Radio is sponsored by Datadog. They are the monitoring and security platform for dev, sec, and, you know, really ops teams as well. And everybody that's really dealing with this cloud age that we now live in, Datadog could be extremely appealing for you and for on-premises systems as well, because you can bring it all together. Unify your metrics, your traces, your logs, all in one place to troubleshoot issues faster and break down silos between teams. You can communicate create real-time, beautiful dashboards. In fact, go to datadog.com slash Coda Radio and create an account and go look at these dashboards. Go look at them dashboards, okay? You got over 450 different software stack technologies you can integrate in with minutes. You can pivot from high-level overviews of your entire environment and zoom in and get a granular visualization of the metrics and events around your application, your hardware, or the entire stack. Datadog offers infrastructure monitoring, security monitoring, real user monitoring, like real actual live users through the system, and a lot more, and it's all in one place. So go get started with a free trial today by going to datadog.com slash Coda Radio. See why thousands of companies trust Datadog and why so many listeners of the Coda Radio program use Datadog to monitor their critical infrastructure. And if you start a free trial and you create one dashboard, Datadog's going to send you a free t-shirt. Yeah. I like free swag, especially when there hasn't been an events for what feels like 25 years. So go check out Datadog, support the show, and start monitoring your environment in real time with their fantastic dashboards. That's datadog.com slash Radio. I feel a challenge in the air, Mr. Dominic. Challenge. 
I saw you tweeting about a hundred days of code and uh, my eyes and ears perked up. Yeah. So, you know, um, we get a lot of feedback and I particularly get a lot of trolling about the, uh, I forgot what was seven languages in seven months or something we did with Wes. Mm. And I want to do something bigger than it. Right. So I keep seeing this on Twitter, this hundred days of code thing. And every once in a while I'll tweet something, but it's kind of hard because I don't want to tweet out like client code. And so I've been tweeting out like the new Alice stuff, but, I feel like there should be some way, and I'm honestly, I'm curious for your feedback, for like not to recreate the language challenge because I think that was actually in a, in a weird way too hard. Because it's just like going from zero to new language in a week was was not fun. But to do something similar to that, where it's like, for instance, you know, the new version of Alice is actually written on a fast API, which. A thousand thank yous to Wes because he recommended that to me because I've been doing a lot of Flask before. And Flask is great, not dissing Flask, but Fast API is pretty cool. The guy who made it also has something called the SQL model, which is an interesting other library coming out or that has come out. That seems like content that people would like to hear about and that might help people in our audience who are either thinking about picking up some Python or are Python developers but maybe are working in something a little more mainstream like Django. Behind that, I'm thinking also about Maui, which for folks who don't know, I don't know why you would know this. Maui is the new like .NET 6 unified stack. That might be interesting to look at, but I see, I don't know, right, Chris? The problem is the universe of like new development tools coming out is like so big. How would I narrow this down? Yeah, and how to make it useful for people, right? In a way that actually provides value. That is tricky. You know, uh, Solomon on Twitter suggested talking about the challenges that programmers face and if a hundred day challenge of coding could help. Like, like I've used challenge, I've used personal challenges in the past to learn something new, like each day challenge myself to try something in a new way or do a new thing. Is that useful? I mean, I definitely feel that the hundred day challenge in particular helps because, you know, the more you write code, I, the, the better at it you are. I, I definitely feel that myself. Like if I go, you know, a couple of days where I don't write any like meaningful code, I I make more stupid mistakes. I have to look things up a little more. You know, like indie jams where it's like, well, not indie jams. What do they call those? Ah, uh, before COVID, they used to do them all the time. You'd like go to some vendor who had an API, have pizza, and build like a little stupid app on their API. Hackathons, hackathons. Oh yeah, sure. I will say for the for the coding challenge we do with Wes. It definitely forced me out of my comfort zone in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, that can be good. Which is good. Not necessarily a good thing if you're smack dab in the middle of an intense project, but it can be good if you've got the capacity. Right. So I don't know. I, I guess they're good. I mean, you just don't take it too far, right? Like I like to do little code katas just about every day. They're little coding puzzles. Um, and I do a rotation of languages on them. Although, spoiler alert, Ruby and Objective-C are actually falling out of the rotation. My two favorites. Oh, no. Yeah. You should write somebody, you know, complain a little bit. Maybe they'll change it. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not. No, the, the, the prompt is just the prompt. You do it in whatever language you want. It's me. <gasps> what? Yeah. Are you okay? <laughs> do you need to lie down? <laughs> it's just not practical. I spend more time in Python and C Sharp and C++. The times are changing. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, all right. Well, we could get some input from the audience. They could tweet you at Dumanuka or they could email us coder.show slash contact. Give us some ideas. Cause I like, I like, I think the idea of making it useful and valuable to people is a good one. So that way they, they can take something from it if they participate, um, or not possibly. Exactly. Hmm. Although I, I we did do a challenge once before the Katy Perry challenge and I still use that application. <laughs> oh yeah. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. One of these days we're going to do a plasma challenge. I tell you what. No. Could do a, could do Python. You know, our friends over at a cloud guru have data preparation for Python. Of course now. Yeah, that's right. They'll quickly cover how to connect to various database types. That's good. Then they'll jump into using pandas. So everybody likes a panda. And they'll look at examples of uh, cleansing, missing, and outlying data, as well as data visualizations and explorations. So if you got to get your data cleansed or you got to do some exploration and you want to know about pandas and it's time to get a little happy with the snake, they have got data preparation for Python. We'll have a link in the show notes, or you can go to cloudguru.com for that. But I have a sense that Python's probably not going to be one of the challenges. Maybe. That could be fun. Well, like fast API could be a challenge, though, right? It's a new framework. Mm. Mm. So that's the thing. I'm thinking, like, that's my whole thing. I don't think the challenges should just be languages. There's a big difference between writing, let's say, C++, because you're, like, coding in the Unreal Engine, and writing C++ because you're, you know, writing something for an IoT device, right? Sure. There's a, I mean, Python in particular is just, like, huge, right? Python ML code is very, very different than uh, Django website code or Flask website code. Python uh, IoT code, which, for those who don't know, the reason people use Python on IoT, other than it being, like, really enjoyable to work in, is uh, Python is like a like C, basically. There's a layer you can... In fact, there's a, oh, Jesus, I forgot the name of the thing, but you can compile it down. Scython? Scython? What the hell is it? Mm. I don't remember. Someone will correct us in the feedback. We'll have it next week, but yeah. I like it. I like the idea a lot. I, you know, you see, you're ruminating there before that second shot and you're getting some good ideas. It's like shower thought time. Do you have shower thoughts? Is that a thing for you where you're in the shower and you get your best ideas? You know what? I, I figure out what's wrong with my SQL queries in the shower all the time. <laughs> like all the time. There's something about the shower and Postgres that really is just, it, it works for me. It clicks. I don't know. It just goes together. Yeah. A hot, steamy shower and Postgres. That, that's a show title. Steamy Postgres shower. I bet our Coder QA team members already know all about it. You know, we post the Coderly report for them every quarter and you can support the show by going to CoderQA.co. You help us stay independent. You get a limited ad feed and you get that special bonus Coderly episode <laughs> every quarter <laughs> always recorded in a coder bathrobe boy oh boy i you know mike and i know mike knows because we've been talking about this off air but people are still sending in their robe emails about how much they love them honestly man i think you need to, i think you need to it's time for, you think i should it, read them it's, no it's well of course but it's time for robe v2 maybe i've been thinking about it or slippers slippers I think the number one thing that it has made me feel really good is people thought it was going to be high quality, but didn't expect it to be as high quality as it is. And so I feel like we got that part of it right. Now it's really just a matter of like being able to ship on time, being able to, you know, source it, all that kind of thing. So I got to start looking into that. Who cares? People, people are waiting months for, for GPUs right now. They'll wait a couple months for a robe. Tell you what, <laughs> tweet, tweet at Dumanuko your robe pictures and I will harass Chris with them. <laughs> all right so at dumanuko for uh, his personal account the company is at the mad botter inc i'm over there at chris las the whole network is at jupiter signal and this here podcast has its own handle on the twitter at code radio show which is good for news announcements and releases is there anywhere else you want to send people mr dominic not yet but if i ever ship this last goddamn 20 percent, i will no kidding right Ooh, we all wait in anticipation 
Well, links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 430. You'll also find our contact form over there, our RSS feed so you can subscribe. Turns out it's a web page. So what we've done is we've hyperlinked a bunch of stuff. You just go to coder.show for our hyperlinks using the hypertext transfer protocol. You're going to love it. And you can always join us live. We do it at Mondays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern over jblive.tv. We love having you join the chat room and help us title this here show. But that does wrap us up for this episode of the Coda Radio Program. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>